So we're going to look at the bride today. Here's our objectives you'll see that will go through in your outline. We're going to look at the bride, which then, of course, Israel becomes a harlot. And then the divorce, God divorcing Israel, and what is the result? And as we do this, we're going to kind of take a little look at beings and deities in Scripture, or just kind of starting this thing, uh, and you're probably going to get a lot more of it with, uh, in this class with angels and demons and kind of understanding what Scripture says about them. So if you start up here with the bride, uh, we'll see we, as the church, are the bride of Christ. The bride has made herself ready. So number one, the church is the bride of Christ. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory. All the glory goes to him for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. So that's uh, number one. The church is the bride of Christ. Well, how about God in the Old Testament? So that's just, yes, that's there in the New Testament. We're not really gonna get into that today. How about God in the Old Testament? So Ezekiel chapter 16 is a very graphic description. Isn't it interesting how big a placenta is? When you actually think about it, the lifeblood to this baby, uh, it's pretty amazing when you look at the realities, and, and this is amazing to me, to look at what God teaches and how physical and real things are, and then how the applications become obvious. So if you'd never seen a newborn infant, you've never seen a placenta, and sometimes, I remember delivering babies, I had a couple 15, 16-year-old gals that intentionally smoked their whole pregnancy, thinking, what in the world? Well, what happens when you smoke? You basically pollute your placenta and the umbilical cord. You'll end up with this small, ratty piece of junk placenta. But if you have a small, ratty piece of junk placenta, what happens to the child? It is small. It's easier to deliver that child. And so, yeah, you'll run into young gals, very immature, who sacrifice the health and well-being of their placenta, which then hurts the brain development of their child in order to pass it through the birth canal more easily. Huh. But if you understand kind of what you're seeing, it, it's amazing how to think of here's something physical and how do we start making application to our thinking with it. But as we go back to Israel, this chapter in Ezekiel 16, God is specifically talking about Israel, this nation, wallowing in your blood. Very graphic. If you read Ezekiel 16, you, can't, you cannot escape a graphic God. And so one of the questions, why do we water down what God tells us in his word? In this class, as you go, at one point we're going to talk about Nephilim. Uh, and you might think that's a distractionary topic. More than half the books in the Bible pertain to the Nephilim. I know I've counted them up and I've got them on a list. That's amazing. It's not a peripheral doctrine. You can't understand most of the Old Testament. You definitely can't understand the Exodus and the conquest and starting of the kings with Solomon to David without understanding that. That might seem odd to you, but that's true. We're not going to talk about them today. But that's an interesting thing of what's going on in the realm up here that we don't see. And so God is talking about Israel in this chapter. And then he, I'm going to pick it up here at verse 8. Then I passed by you, God speaking about Israel as this baby infant wallowing in her, in her own blood. And behold, now you have grown and developed in her at the time of, for love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. So God is now starting to enter into a relationship with Israel. I, God, swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord God. That's number two. Israel is the bride of God. Go to Jeremiah. Go and proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem, God telling Jeremiah, tell them, saying, thus says the Lord, 
I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth, the love of your betrothals. You're following after me in the wilderness through a land not sown out in the desert. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first of his harvest. What was the first nation of the whole earth that God chose? It was Israel, the first of his harvest. And when did this betrothal take place? What mountain is that? That's Mount Sinai. Um, So that's Mount Sinai, and it's interesting when you read it, you have thunder, you have lightning, and deep dark. How do you have lightning and deep darkness at the same spot in this massive earthquake? Uh, The Israelites are too afraid to go up there. So Moses, of course, is up there, then there's the 70 elders, and then you have the rest of Israel. So in that context of Exodus 19, four to five, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Remember, God is speaking here, and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for the earth is mine. If, then. There are multiple buts in Scripture, multiple ifs, and there's multiple if, then. If you obey my voice and keep my covenant, if you agree to this, then you shall be mine, you shall be my bride. And notice God says, all the earth is mine. There's, there's a concept that we're going to get into here today. The last couple of years, I like to read different translations of the Bible, different study Bibles, and get different things. So the last couple of years, I've been emphasizing there's kind of three sets. You've got your heart and mind. You've got your body and your flesh. You've got your soul and your spirit. Notice that's three pairs, and how do we distinguish those things? It's been an amazing study to just go through. Every time you see one of those words, how does it integrate in the stuff that's all around it? And it's amazing what you learn. This last year, what I've been doing is trying to learn the names of God, and there's tons of them. It's an amazing thing. But what is God, and how does he relate to those things around him, and how the Bible opens up? We'll see some of that stuff here in a minute. Uh, But God is always distinguished from other little g-gods. All the earth is mine, and he can sovereignly do with it what he wants. He can sovereignly choose who he wants to, and he is offering this. The whole earth is mine, but I'm sovereignly offering this to you, Israel. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will. I was just at a wedding yesterday. What do you do? I do. We will. I do. Moses brought the words back from the people to the Lord. So Moses on the mountain. God tells him what to do. He comes down, offers this to the people, and they say, I do, we will. So now we go back to Ezekiel. Then your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty. For it was perfect. Why? Because of my splendor, God's splendor, which I bestowed on you, declares the Lord. Why was Israel beautiful? Not of her own, it was bestowed by God. Number three, any splendor we have comes from the Lord. And you notice this is the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. So we're gonna start looking at some of the names of God as we work through this a little bit. But Israel takes this beauty, not hers, given to her from God, and now she goes forth and is arrogant going among the nations. But, so when you highlight buts and therefores and ifs, you start seeing things you missed before, but... You trusted your beauty and played the harlot because of your fame. You poured out your harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. So you didn't stay true to me. Who is he talking to? He's talking to Israel about what? False gods, false Elohim. 
You trusted in your beauty and played the harlot. So now we're going to move down to number two, Israel as a harlot. And at men's camp, we're not quite graduated to men's camp level here. At men's camp, we read a couple of verses, pornographic, hypersexual, written by God himself. Guys at that camp would remember some of those. Because I didn't give you warning, I'm removing them today. But we were gonna, we're gonna hit some of these things as we go through this class because why on earth do we stick our head in the sand and say that's not polite and mixed company and ignore the written word of God? That's a profound question. And why do translations sometimes hide the graphic sexual nature of what God speaks in Scripture? That's a question that we should ask ourselves because there's some things here that I'm not reading today that would probably surprise you quite a bit. Uh, any of the guys at camp last week know what some of those were. But here's a question. Why did God send the ten plagues on Egypt? Why is he doing that? He is rendering judgment among the little g-gods of Egypt. Against these little g-gods, I, Yahweh Elohim, will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Number four, a major reason for the plagues on Egypt was the Lord executing judgment on their gods. Little g-god. Well, we're going to look at some of these words. God is the Lord. What is that? That is Yahweh. Anytime you see Yahweh, you know who that is. That is the big guy up here, the creator, a triune God, a plurality, three in one, but he self-exists. He was never brought into existence. The Bible is very clear in monotheism. The Bible does not teach polytheism as you might think, but the Bible does teach polytheism. We're going to understand this difference. God is, Yahweh, big God, is judging. What are these gods that he's judging? What are they called in the Hebrew? Elohim. Wait, I thought Elohim strictly related to God. No, Elohim is a term that means spirit deity. So there's two realms. There's the unseen realm. What are those called? Elohim. What are these called? Us, humans, physical, tangible. Two realms. Who created all of it? Who created all of the Elohim? Yahweh. He is an Elohim as well. You notice God is. So you could say there are bears, Mammals, but then there's little bears, there's sun bears, there's black bears, and there's grizzly, there's polar, there's various types. All the spirit deities would be Elohim. That would be a title. Some of them will have a name. We'll look at later. Baal, Marduk, Ishtar, etc. But this is a category up here. What happens up here doesn't influence, it dictates. Mike Sermon had elements of that. What happens up here in this realm dictates what happens in the realm we see who created both realms? Who created everything? Yahweh Elohim, the uncreated. He created it all, and he renders judgment among little g gods or Elohim. For the Egyptians burned all their firstborn, which the Lord, Yahweh, had smitten among them. And so when you read the Lord in all caps, that is Yahweh. When you see God, it is Elohim. And a lot of your translations will capitalize G, God, to let you know it's the big God, or a little g, but it's still Elohim. It's the exact same word. The Lord, that's Yahweh. What did he do here? Again, this is a second verse. So everything's with the testimony of two or three witnesses. It's amazing how some things in Scripture may only have two, but there's at least two witnesses to things. Don't ignore if something is ever repeated in Scripture. Why was this talking about the plagues? Upon their gods, the Lord executed judgment. Here's the Hebrew, four words. Elohim, gods. The Lord, Yahweh. Asah, he executed 
Sephet, judgment, that's it. That's the, but Elohim, judging other Elohims, but Yahweh is over them all, and he renders judgment. Psalms 82, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Interesting passage. There's a divine council. These would be Elohim, spirit beings. And there are gods, plural, Elohim. But who's holding the judgment? Elohim. Huh. So you might think this means Trinity, but if you read the whole, we're not going to read the whole Psalms, but you read the whole Psalms, and big Yahweh Elohim, so there's always context where you know, is it Yahweh or is it just a group of Elohim? Yahweh, he is not the chairman of the board. He is the creator of the Elohim, but he is still a spirit being. So he is not the chairman, he's the creator of it, and he is rendering judgment, and you read this psalm, it can't be something of Elohim, the triune God, because it is deficient and judged unworthy and will die the death of men, which means it will get thrown into the lake of fire. Oh, that's the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels, we see in Matthew. Psalm 86, uh, and when you're reading I, the Psalms, especially, so Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, when you start to understand that uh, God is talking about this realm quite a bit and we don't understand it. When you start to understand that, I can promise you, you go through the Psalms, your eyes will be opened of what God is actually saying and how he is attacking and demeaning various competitor deities in the real realm up here that dictates what happens down here. There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. So among the Elohim... Yahweh stands alone. Why? Because of his works of creation. Psalm 96, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, above all Elohim. Who is different? Yahweh. Sometimes he's Yahweh Elohim, but if it's Yahweh, you know who he is. He is to be praised and feared above all of the Elohim in this unseen realm. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens and the earth. All the gods, there it is again, all the Elohim. So all of this category here are idols. There's the word for idol. What does that mean? It's actually an adjective, not a noun. And that means weak, worthless, pathetic, cannot accomplish anything. So when you read the Bible, it's easy to think that God is saying these idols, and the ancient people didn't believe the idol was anything. They knew it wasn't. It was the way they channeled the spirit deity. They knew that it was just a piece of metal. It's what's behind the piece of metal and how they access it, right? Like an Ouija board or something like that. So these idols, worthless, weak, pathetic, cannot amount to anything. When you read scripture, understand the context. What is this context? Here you have the Elohim, the unseen realm that dictates what happens down here to us. This is God speaking about these compared to him as Yahweh, if he is speaking about them compared to us, they have significant power. The Bible never says they have no power. When it says they have no power, such as this psalm, it is in relation to Yahweh. They are so much more powerful than us, but they are meaningless compared to the Creator. That's the point. Other passages, you'll see they have divine power, but that's related to us down here. Related to him up there, there might as well be a big zero, if that makes sense. It's all about Yahweh. 
So are there spiritual battles? Yes, and this is an amazing thing when you start going through Scripture. Uh, you look at Daniel chapter 13. But the prince, what's a prince? There's prince, there's kings. You do not know if that's in this realm or that realm until you read the context. Which realm are we talking about? It's Gabriel speaking. And Gabriel says, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came. what's a prince? One of the big time guys here, Satan would be a prince, right? He would be one of them. But there's multiple Elohim. Some are good, some are bad. Some have fallen, some have not. Spirit deities, they're all real beings. Do they have power? Does the Bible teach they do? Yes, here we have Gabriel speaking. And he's saying, this prince, prince, the context lets you know it's talking about this realm. Prince or king can be this realm or this realm, an earthly prince or an earthly king or an Elohim. Jesus Christ is a prince in Daniel. The Messiah, the prince, oh, that's talking about this realm, who also dictates what happens in this realm. So let's get back here to Gabriel. The prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. What does Gabriel's name mean? Gabor in the Hebrew, the mighty ones, the powerful ones, the men of renown, the warriors, Gabriel, El, God. So El is a shorthand form of Elohim. Gabriel, the mighty warrior of the mighty God. Gabriel is not a wimp. And what does he tell Zacharias? I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. You will not speak. People have fear when they see them. But now, look what the Bible is teaching. Gabriel is not a wussbag angel. He is a powerful one. Angel simply means messenger, by the way. Cherub or seraph would be a particular kind of an angel, but they're all components of this realm up here of the Elohim. So he comes, as soon as Daniel prayed, he starts to come, but could he penetrate Persia? No, there's a prince. That's not a dude sitting on a throne. That's a being up here that is more powerful than Gabriel. Gabriel has to call in Michael. And only then can he penetrate through the barrier. So look at what the Bible is teaching. Yes, there are Elohim, multiple of them. Some are called by a proper name, and others are just called as members of the class. Here, a prince is generic, but notice Gabriel and Michael are not. You have to read more of it to realize this is Gabriel. I just am picking this passage. There is geography. They fly through the space. They are not infinite. They don't go, they don't teleport. They, God can teleport people. But angels fly. Gabriel is moving in swift flight, very fast, but he moves with bang. He hits a barrier, enforced by another Elohim, and Gabriel is insufficient to pass through. So there is territory, there is geography. What is being worshipped here? How does that go? Is Yahweh being worshipped or others? And then God, when you read the Old Testament, is sovereign in giving territory and taking it away. When you understand the, concept, the context of the uh, conquest, God specifically says the sins of the Amorites have not reached their full measure. When we understand that, when we talk about the Nephilim, you'll realize the almighty Yahweh God is saying there is divine. The divine just means members of the Elohim, but there is divine from Yahweh protection among even the Nephilim for a period of time. It is not sovereignly time to remove them. And then Mike talked about Saul 
usurping the role of the priest, losing the eternal dynasty. Later, he fails to commit genocide of the Amalekites, and we are talking man, woman, child. That is because the almighty Yahweh dictated, now it is time to remove that, and when it has been dictated, it's time to remove you, you be removed. Very interesting. The prince. So there's Parthenons and Pantheons. You got to understand, what is this building called? What? Parthenon, somebody got it over there. The Parthenon, that's the building. What's the power behind the Parthenon? That's the Pantheon. So just pick Greek mythology, you could pick any one. This would be the Pantheon of Greek gods. And notice, it's fascinating. We're not gonna get into Greek mythology, but who Zeus really is and how he transforms from a, yes, serpent to a man-like being. The transfer of authority after Noah, after the flood. That's a, a brief summary of the real meaning of Greek mythology, all depicted in their pictures. So how do you worship a deity? What do you do? What is this guy? Who? Baal uh, or Moloch. Uh, and of course, you offer your children. Why do they play the music loud? They're going to burn your baby. That's because they don't want to hear the crying. Very graphic, very literal. Again, we're in Ezekiel 16. You slaughtered my children. You notice your children are not yours. Who do they belong to? Yahweh. You are the steward. You are not the owner of your children. You are the steward. You slaughtered my children and offered them up to idols, causing them to pass through the fire. And of course, there you have Marduk, a dragon, the father of Baal. So you notice the Bible is very clear. There is a pantheon in this unseen realm. Yes, the Bible teaches that very clear. But there is a creator, self-existent God. We're not talking pantheism or let's just say polytheism like the world would talk about. There is a single God up here who created the pantheon. But there is a pantheon. Satan corrupts. He does not create. He doesn't generate new ideas. What he does is corrupts what God said. Ah, Who's the top of the pantheon? Well, it's Zeus, and if that one, but it's going to be Satan at the end of the day. So what does every pantheon do? It just lops off Yahweh Elohim and teaches scripture. But you lopped off the creator, and now, oh, I happen to be in the Elohim. I'm the highest of them. There we go. But got rid of the big dog up there. It's the Bible lopping off Elo Yahweh Elohim. So there's Marduk, any mystery that it's a dragon, and you notice how all of the mythologies are a little confusing as to the origin and how did it create. And how, it's fuzzy on every one of them because they can't just say in the beginning, God, that's Elohim, chapter one, all of Genesis, chapter two, all of Genesis is Yahweh Elohim. In the beginning, Yahweh Elohim, the self-existent one, John one, the Lagos, the Christ, all together, this self-existent, pre-eternal, from eternity to eternity, I am. All other Elohim are generated beings created by the Almighty. The Bible is clear on the creation event. No other mythology has it clear. I, you, I've, I love reading them, but you will always be confused. You use those to understand a little more, but you do not use them to understand reality. Use the Bible to understand reality. Jeremiah 19, because they have forsaken me have made, uh, and have made this an alien place and burned sacrifices to other gods, little g gods, Elohim, that neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah had ever known because they filled this place with the blood of the innocent. Children sacrifices to little g gods and have built the high place. You notice the Bible connects Baal with Marduk. Jesus connects Beelzebub with Satan. 
There is no confusion who they are when you stick with Scripture, but then you just see, yes, there's various forms, but don't chase all the deities around. You notice, like the witch of Endor, God tells you there is reality here, but why are you intrigued by it, right? Understand the Bible teaches us the truth. They have built high places to Baal and burned their sons in the fires, burnt offerings to Baal, a thing which I never commanded or spoke, nor did it enter my mind, the high places of Baal. Here we're going to see judgment on Moab. And of course, the context, I'm just showing you a few verses, is big Yahweh. Chemosh will go into exile. Well, declares the king. Here's an example. The king who? King Nebuchadnezzar? King Melech. Malek is angel. Melech Angel is just a messenger. King is Melech, declares the king. We need context. Which realm are we talking about? Oh, whose name is the Lord? Yahweh. Now I know specifically this is in this realm up here, not a human king down here. The context told me very clear who it is. And this is Yahweh, the king of Sabah, the Sabbat, the host. That can be a host of armies down in this realm made up of human beings or a host of angelic beings, Elohim, up here. Which realm are we talking about? Well, we're talking about a, see, that does not say Elohim because that's a proper name. That is the name of an Elohim. But God is making the declaration. He is king. King of what? Oh, this is this Yahweh, this king. Now I know who it is. It's the king of the armies of heaven. We're talking in this realm up here. Judgment on Babylon. The word which the Lord, there he is, Yahweh, spoke concerning Babylon, the land of the Chaldeans through Jeremiah the prophet. Yahweh is speaking here. And there's two proper names of two specific Elohim or deities in Babylon. You see where Babel comes from? Bel. It's not till after the language change it means confusion. Before that it was gateway to the gods. Bel and Marduk. And again, Marduk was a dragon. Huh. Boy, doesn't scripture give you a lot of truth when you start putting it together? So the question is, how do you worship a deity? Mike Sermon had that in there today with Saul. How do you worship a deity? How do you worship an Elohim? So when we think Elohim, we think Yahweh Elohim. Well, the Bible tells you all sorts of ways to worship a deity. How do you do it? Here's Yahweh. The priests are to perform my service in such a way that they do not become guilty and die. What happens if you don't do it right? You die for treating it with contempt. What happens if the wrong guy touches the ark? He dies. I am the Lord. This is Yahweh speaking. I make these things holy. They're not holy in and of themselves. And you perform service. So we could put all of the Levitical laws in here. I'm just handpicking one just so we understand. A few times there's bowing and singing, but worship is your activity. That's primarily what it is. When you read the Old Testament, most of it is what you choose to do. No one outside a priest's family may eat the sacred, sacred offering or guests of a priest or his hired worker. What happens if you violate that? You die. So he gives specific instructions of what to do. That is how you worship a deity is your action. It could be bowing. Uh, and the angel of the Lord enforces worship of him, which is very interesting. Yes, he is Yahweh incarnate. Number five, God provides explicit instructions as to how we should worship him. And that says, God, you might put Yahweh or Lord. Make it clear. Don't have it nebulous. If it's Elohim, you're not sure what it is. So, again, we looked at Predator, and so if you've got a little kid, this has some part that might be a little scary, but we're going to watch a little video clip. I guess there's no sound. 
So if we don't have the sound, uh, you see these people uh, uh, as they're they're going back to one of the old temples. This is alien versus predator. So again, we talked about predator earlier. And then these are the alien beings that are going to come out of those things. So I'll just skip to here. How do you worship a deity? So if you understand the theology of predator, you got a pretty good grip on scripture. You notice all the humans here? There's seven of them. They all got a big hole in their chest, but none of them are tied down. It was an act of bravery, you're gonna give your life to worship, in this case, a little G-God, Elohim, or the predator. You're gonna worship it by giving your life, then the aliens come out, and, and they come into you, come out your chest, and the predator simply wants to hunt the best animal there is. So you could you know, hunt a squirrel. My son hunted one and put it up on the, above the fireplace for a while, and we're like, son, that's a squirrel. That's, that's garbage. Uh, but if you get a grizzly bear, you put that sucker up and show everybody what you got, right? And so the predators want the most challenging hunt in a hand-to-hand combat. The predator can't beat the alien. But with his technology and knowledge, he can. That is the ultimate hunt is the predator. So that's what they're after. So humans give their life to the Elohim, to the predator, so that it can propagate the aliens. Then the predator can kill the alien and have a trophy. But notice the humans willingly give their life as a sacrifice to save other humans. But look how proud it is for me. It's an honor to me. They're not chained up. It's an honor to me to give my life to other people. Look how Satan twists scripture, even in a movie. It's very similar to Christ's death, but it's different. And it's you, and it's elevating yourself to pacify the deity, in this case, the predator. And when you look at these movies, I think they're fascinating because the predator comes and goes. He's up. He's up high. He is an Elohim. He communicates with mankind, with people, with humans, sometimes seen, sometimes unseen. They can turn invisible. Oh, wow, that's an Elohim, just like the Bible describes. Number six, every deity demands specific rituals for proper worship. They just copy what Yahweh does. They just lop him off the top. So again, question, how do you worship a deity? Any Elohim, any deity. Here's the phrase, propitiation. You must satisfy the deity. So it's your propitiation that satisfies the deity. Oh, we've been talking about Elohim, Predator, Marduk, Baal. How do you satisfy the self-existent eternal creator, Yahweh Elohim? How do you satisfy him? How do you offer your life? Do you let an alien come in and blow you out? And then how do you do it? How do you satisfy Yahweh? We can't. It's impossible. 1 John 4.10, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. So the New American Standard 2B is in italics. That's not in the text. God sent his son, the propitiation for our sins. Jesus is the propitiation. So you read that, it can mean atone or cover. Yeah, Old Testament, there's propitiation Very short term, it's not real, it doesn't really count. That's happening in the Old Testament. If I go home and paint a piece of furniture in our living room and show it to my wife, do you think she's, did I please the deity? You see, no, she didn't like what I did, and I have to do it again. An atonement, 
doesn't matter if it doesn't appease the deity. It can mean reconcile, but reconcile doesn't matter if it didn't appease the deity. You must appease the deity. Satisfactory payment in full, the deity must say that did it. Nothing in all, so there's this realm of Elohim, there's our physical world here. All of that together would be called the created universe. Add it all up, every Elohim, as well as every human, every, everything, add it all up, can that possibly be offered as a sacrifice to Yahweh? No. The self-existent Yahweh who exists outside the box, he created the box called the known universe. He created the Elohim. He created us. He created both realms. But only he can send his son penetrating through all of that to come to earth to be the propitiation that we cannot do. We cannot solve the deity. Here's a Pollyon, our Abaddon. Pastor D talked about him a couple weeks ago. How would you satisfy this guy? Interesting question. Because you're always going to satisfy it. How do you satisfy Marduk, how do you satisfy Moloch? Oh, you give up your child. Did the God, did the Elohim go anywhere? No. They just have territorial power that comes and goes, it ebbs and flows. And who is sovereign over which Elohim has power over what geography? Yahweh. It is always sovereign. In Acts, he is always giving and removing. God is always sovereign over these affairs. You're just sacrificing to Marduk for your own prosperity in one form or another. That's abortion. You notice the deities, the Elohim, love to congregate around legal situations and posts of power because politics is nothing more than the forced exercise of a certain worldview slash religion. That's what politics is. Which, which Elohim will we follow in this nation? That's why they love those places and they don't really like being on a small island somewhere. They like seats of power. Romans 1, although they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. So I looked at this from the NFL. It's very interesting. Social justice statements in each team's end zone. Well, you know, here's the Chiefs, and you look, it takes all of us. Whoa. That's Psalm 2. You can write Psalm 2 down and go study it in conjunction with this. You'll see what it really means. It takes all of us. And then here's these. Well, those aren't actually the gay pride rainbow and all that, but it started with pink for breast cancer. Okay, so they're, they're just diseases, but they're, what do diseases have to do with social statements and social justice? So I just simply Googled NFL, and here you have the NFL logo with the rainbow, LGTB. Huh. Ten years ago, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE, is going to kill football. I'm looking at the rates across, you know, I've coached football for years. Even in Texas, youth football rates plummeting. It is plummeting. NFL will be gone. NFL, they don't care about racism. The best guy wins, or the best guy plays. Very conservative in the, the morality and the values that the NFL used to have, and you notice it changed. We have you says the Elohim, the little g-god of this world and the spirits. We have you. We are going to browbeat you to death with a concept of CTE. You'll hear Antonio Brown and some of these occasional things now where a guy's acting funny, but it won't last. Because back about eight to ten years ago, the NFL hired one of the Obama administration's press liaison. I'll, put it, I'll translate that for you. High priest to satisfy the Elohim. 
That person comes, I know how to talk with the media, and basically what the media wants is for you guys to push social justice. You notice how the NFL has taken a big pivot in the last 10 years? They were going to die. The Elohim have them. Football is going to die until they capitulate and please the deity, and now they serve social justice, and now you'll occasionally hear of CTE, but it's nothing. It's gone away. They have pacified the deity. We will now let you live and use you to enforce our message. So number seven in your notes, the Bible reveals to us the spiritual underpinnings of how our world operates. Remember, that realm up here dictates, doesn't influence, dictates what happens down in our realm down here. And you can just look at all the stuff of the Palestinians in America. So many places in America. Compare this to 20 years ago. Remember spirit, Elohim, the deities come and go. It is sovereignly always orchestrated by Yahweh. But you can see the spirit of the age and why Israel doesn't even follow God. They're atheists, humanists. But the Elohim know. They're the chosen bride of Christ, and they will come back. So kill Israel. you got to make one statement of God fall flat, and then Satan can claim to be the Almighty. So how do you worship a deity? You may not even do it yourself, but you give hearty approval to those who do. That's the NFL currently right now. You can make all sorts of examples. The NFL is just a multi-billion dollar platform. So we're made in the image of God, and secular studies are fascinating. This is Ivy League research. I would say the word created. They use the word hardwired. We are hardwired for language, the human brain. Obvious, look at a little baby. Hardwired for language. In every culture ever known on earth, hardwired, created for language. But it's more than that. How do we use our language? We use our language to get into fellowship and groups, one human with another. We're not to be isolated. We're fellowship beings, just like Yahweh, eternal triune fellowship. And then their words, spirituality. That's Ivy League research. We are hardwired for spirituality. What does that mean? We have language. Language is used to build relationship. Relationship must fit within a context called spirituality, a context for the relationship. Marriage, a death ceremony. Notice spirituality gives you a context for it, but now where did it go when you removed Yahweh? You have to fill it with something, but that's hardwired in us. Every, you can tell what is human and what is non. Even uh, Neanderthals, the ceremonial burial of the dead, there is a spiritual meaning behind the passing of somebody. All humans, yes, Neanderthals are humans, share our DNA. All of them have ceremonial burial of the dead. We fit in underneath the big picture of spirituality. But here's the next thing. They never said this. This is me, but it's obvious in Scripture. We are created, hardwired to worship. What is worship? It can be bowing down, it can be praying, but it is activity. It is what you choose to do and you are always serving an Elohim. This realm is us, that realm is them. Everything we are doing is servicing and worshiping some member of the Elohim class. The question is which Elohim? That's the only question. So now we're gonna look, what in the world does this have to do with the bride of Christ, or the bite of God, uh, and so this will go a lot faster here, but men give gifts to all harlots. So remember, Israel was a harlot. Men give gifts to harlots. They pay the harlot, but you give your gifts to them. This is backwards, to bribe them to come into you from every direction for your harlotries. Thus you are different 
from those women in your harlotries in that no one pays the harlot as you do or plays the harlot because you give money and no money is given to you. The harlot's supposed to take a paycheck for the sexual favor, but you're paying dudes to come in. Look how corrupt you are, God speaking to Israel. Eight, God graphically and specifically connects idolatry with sexual adultery. Idolatry with sexual adultery. And you notice how you're a kid, you're, you lump them together, you keep them lumped together, you're accurate that way. So now we get to this divorce. Yes, God was married, what did he do? He divorced his bride Israel. There it is, Jeremiah 3, 8, a writ of divorce. God hands it to her now. Nine, God gave Israel a formal writ of divorce. Why? Due to her idolatry. So what's the punishment? Thus says, again, this is Yahweh Elohim, thus says the Lord God, I will also do with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath by breaking the covenant. Number 10, God will bring our conduct down on our own heads. And you see that theme all throughout scripture. As you have done, I will do to you. So this is a brief, we're not gonna go into detail here, but what is the specific context? Here it goes into the four kingdoms. So the kingdom is removed. Pastor Mike is gonna, you know, he's talking about Saul, and then it goes to David. That's the kingdom. It starts with Israel, because the, the, in, in uh, Acts 2, they're asking, are you now going to restore the kingdom? It starts with David, and then it goes to Saul, and then it goes to David. You notice God took the kingdom from Saul, gave the kingdom to David, and now the kingdom of Israel will be controlled by Babylon, then Persia, then Greece, then Rome, and that's why they don't talk about other empires or Egypt or whatever, because the question is who controls Jerusalem? That's how you understand the statues in Daniel. And then we see in Jeremiah, you have the time of Jacob's trouble or distress. Specifically, that would be the tribulation. Number 11. The final phase of Israel's punishment for adultery will be the tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel. But will it completely annihilate him? No, he will be saved from it. So when you read Isaiah and you understand the Babylonian captivity, it's 10% that make it back. So the tribulation will be a heart. So God judges adultery slash idolatry is the point. You're gonna have the judgments in, in, in the tribulation and realize Satan doesn't generate or create new stuff. He mimics, he destroys, he corrupts. God has a triune, self-existent trinity. You notice Satan does the same thing. He just makes a trinity with the, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. That's an evil trinity. He didn't invent the concept. God did. But he's trying to do everything by just lopping Yahweh off the throne and going under the sun. That's what he's trying to do. So now we go to the result what is the result? We're specifically looking at the spirit world, the Elohim, and we're kind of, kind of viewing it through Israel. And what is the result? Remember Jeremiah 30, verse 7, spoke specifically about the time of Jacob. What is Jacob? That is Israel. So God's focus in the tribulation will be on Israel. That's the point, is to bring her back. It shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts. Now this is Yahweh speaking. The Lord of hosts, Sabbat that I will break his yoke from off their neck, the Antichrist, tear off their bonds. Strangers will no longer make them their slaves, but they shall serve the Lord their God. So you're under this judgment, but you will remove, you won't be completely destroyed, and you will come back to, very clear, Yahweh Elohim. That's Yahweh, 
Elohim, and very specific, David, their king, well, he's in the grave, yes, but I will raise him up. Two or three witnesses, there's three verses in the Old Testament that tell you David will be physically rosen. So are we in the kingdom now? No, where's David? And how is Satan not in the abyss if we're in the kingdom? We're not in the kingdom now. Twelve, as a result of the tribulation, Israel will serve the Lord their God and David their king. Are they doing that now? No, not at all. They're atheist humanists. So the book of Hosea very graphically depicts God's marriage with his bride Israel. Here's the timeline of Hosea. You can see there's the four empires that control the kingdom. It passes from A to B to C to D to E, and then it'll come back to A again at the end of the tribulation. Here's Hosea. So he's prophetically writing forward uh, right before the Assyrian captivity in 722. That would be the north, but the south doesn't start till here. That's Jerusalem. The Lord said to Hosea, go, take yourself away. She's already a harlot. People debate this back and forth, but when you look at the passages in Ezekiel, When was the betrothal with Israel? Mount Sinai. When was Israel a harlot? Even before that, those are some of the verses I neglected to read. I chose them out because they are so specifically pornographic. But even in Egypt, you were already a harlot. She was a harlot before she was married. Then you have Sinai, the betrothal. And then on the honeymoon, the golden calf and fornication. And a problem, on the honeymoon, you're already sleeping with other dudes. That's what he's saying. So go take yourself a wife of harlotry. Some commentaries will try to say, well, they, no, she was already a prostitute, and you're marrying someone who's already a prostitute. Because it's mirroring exactly what happened with God in Israel. That's the point. And have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. Go get a wife who's already a harlot. Boy, that's a, I wonder what wedding dress color she wore. So... Uh, Hosea went and took Gomer, the daughter of this dude, and she conceived and bore him a son. 13. The book of Hosea graphically depicts Israel's harlot marriage with God. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord. Did you know God is a Baal? What? Yep. Baal can be a proper noun. It can also be an adjective, Lord or Master. And here's one example. You will call me, or you, you will then call me husband after I come back and no longer call me owner or master because you're moving up, but a Baal, owner or master. Why? For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth so that they will not be mentioned by them anymore. Who is removing the desire to worship false Elohim? God. Yahweh is going to remove that. It is not the choice of Israel. It is the sovereign movement of God. And that's understanding Romans 9, 10, 11. So Hosea 2, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and in loving kindness and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness. So he's prophetically speaking forward of what's going to happen. But now we're talking end of the tribulation. You will know the Lord. I will. It'll last forever. I will. Then... After I act, then you will know the Lord. This is a betrothal. In a current state of divorce and punishment, 2,500 years, at the end of that, it'll come back. Does God punish adultery? 2,500 years, it's not done yet. The Holocaust in World War II is nothing. We haven't hit the tribulation. 
Hosea 3, the Lord said to me, go, show your love to your wife again, though she has loved. So she's got another dude already now. Although she's loved by another man, not a husband, uh, and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loved the Israelites. Back and forth, back and forth into the marriage bed. Though you turn to other Elohim gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. Do this again, other Elohim. And we're not going to spend time on this, but this connects to Ishtar. It's amazing what you learn when you go through scripture. That's a story for another day. So I brought her 15 shekels. That's the price of a female slave. And about a homer and a leek, whatever that is, a barley. I told her, you are to live with me many days and must not be a prostitute or intimate with any man and I will behave the same way to you. This is physically, graphically what's happening with Hosea and Gomer. Mirroring God with Israel. God bought her. Hosea bought her. That's the price of a female slave. What was the price given for Christ? The price of a male slave. 30. 14. God had to purchase Israel away from other deities that she loved. And of course, Christ is the ultimate redemption payment. So in summary, we looked at the bride, uh, the church, the bride of Christ, Israel, the bride of God. But Israel, we're just specifically looking at Old Testament here, how the Israel on the wedding, on the, the week of the honeymoon, is already having idolatry slash adultery, fornication up on Sinai. Then there's official divorce and punishment. What is the result? At the end of it all, God reunites with his bride, Israel, but that awaits the end of the tribulation. Another way you know we're not in the kingdom now is Israel is not betrothed with God. Pretty obvious. Um, so that's a lot of stuff. Uh, I know this will generate questions, and we've only got about two or three minutes. We've got to get out of here. Um, but my, the thinking here, I have really enjoyed going through Scripture, looking at God, Elohim, God, little g, God, Elohim, Yahweh, how it is distinct, how it is different. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, completely different when you start reading this way. The Psalms take on a whole new meaning. I can promise you, especially the 80s and 90s, all of those in there, if you start looking at the Hebrew terms and see what is the author actually saying, it'll blow your mind away. It's not polytheism. There is a creator who is over the Elohim, but they are real, just like Gabriel trying to get into Persia. That is real. It dictates what happens here. They are powerless compared to Yahweh, but highly powerful compared to us. Which realm are we talking about? Any questions on that? I know you have to chew on it for a while. There's one in the back. Well, who would, that's a great question. So there, you're always worshiping an Elohim of some kind, right? And it's amazing how you can get into the weeds of all the various mythologies. Is it Bel? Is it Marduk? Is it Ishtar? Because Ishtar is very strong, the goddess of heaven. They're specifically wanting Ishtar. And you can see God is saying he is Elohim. There is no female consort for Elohim, Yahweh Elohim. As they go through, they start having Ashtoreth, Ishtar, a start, all these female cohorts. Well, yeah, you need to populate with more gods, and you see all the gods cohabiting with man and trying to do, there's all sorts of stuff in these various mythologies. At the end of the day, Jesus himself equates Beelzebul with Satan. So who are they? And you see, Marduk is supposed to be the one you're offering these kids to, but the Old Testament also specifically tells you Baal 
And so God connects them with Satan, Jesus does in the New Testament. So ultimately, you're following any Elohim. You might think it's fame or money or power or sex, whatever. At the end of the day, it's a pantheon of Elohims, false little g-gods. And who is the chief ruler of them? That would be Hasatan or Satan. Any other questions? We probably better pray and get out of here because we've got to clear out. Dear Lord, I thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us your word. Help us to read your word and bow to that uh, and not the ideas of man, especially things that come from our culture, uh, especially from the false Elohim that permeate everything and corrupt our thinking, always attacking you and bringing you down or knocking you off your throne, trying to, but no one can. And we thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign, not only over the Elohim, but through everything. You are sovereign over this entire earth. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.